0: Just a brief word before introducing today's guest. This will be our last podcast of the year. We're going to take a break next week, and our next podcast will be Monday, January seventh, 2008. We've got a lot of exciting guests lined up for the new year, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. Please keep the emails and comments coming. I look forward to talking with you in 2008. My guest today is William Duggan, a professor of management at Columbia University's Business School. His latest book is Strategic Intuition, The Creative Spark in Human Achievement. Bill, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is strategic intuition. Let's start by talking about what you mean by strategy.
1: Uh, well, what I mean by strategy is certainly a very simple and uh, I think uncontroversial definition. It's simply how do you figure out what your goal is and what activities you're going to do to achieve your goal. That's strategy in its simplest form. Uh, of course, there are infinite complications of it as different people propose their ways to do that. Um, certainly, and, especially in business.
0: And how do business schools uh, in America go about trying to teach people strategic thinking, strategy generally? Is it something that can be taught? And well, if so, um, how is it taught? You,
1: you, these are two different subjects, uh, as I have found out myself, um, and that's why I wrote my book. Strategy as taught in business schools is not exactly the same as strategic thinking, and let me tell you what I mean by that. In most business schools, the dominant way people teach strategy these days is to teach strategic analysis, where you use economic concepts and as much economic data as you can find to analyze your industry, your customers, your own situation, and that's it. I mean, that's what they teach you. That is technically strategic analysis. They typically do not tell you, and now here's how you actually formulate your strategy. Here's what to do. Here's what to do. Um, If you say here's what to do, they will then say, oh, well, we can now analyze that according to our analysis of the industry, the competitors in your own situation. But they are silent um, and therefore, I guess, agnostic about how actually to come up with the idea. And I've researched this in great detail, looking, 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 and they leave it out. Um, Partially, I think, because when they do say, well, whenever they do refer to it, they refer to it as, well, that's a creative act, um, and that's not our subject.
0: You know, business schools, in my experience, which is limited but not zero... Uh, having having taught in one for ten years at Washington University uh-huh. business schools like to think of themselves as being analytical places right somewhat scientific uh bringing as you say information to bear the disciplines of economics, sometimes some psychology right. uh data when possible uh-huh. and they make it sound and you 've made it sound like strategic. Planning is an analytical activity, and of course, in the business world, it often is.
1: As they teach it, yes.
0: Uh, Not as I teach it. <laughs> well I want to get to that, but, but do you think most business leaders do strategic planning along the lines of, what, of how it's taught in business school? And do you think great innovators do anything remotely like that?
1: I think that many businesses do do it because they were taught it and it is definitely the dominant method. Lots of consulting firms do it. It's helped create a boom in consulting because it's very elaborate and very difficult. And so to do it, you bring in consultants a lot of the time who are very good at it. Um, I think, all, the, in a sense, all that is fine. I would say I'm agnostic about that. Go ahead, study your industry, study your competitors, study your um, your own situation. Certainly that's all good. But it doesn't tell you what to do. Now, for that step, what typically happens, again, in the sort of dominant model, most businesses, most consulting firms, after they've done all that analysis, what typically do they do to come up with the idea physically? What what actually do they do?
0: I think they run a lot of focus groups with people in the uh, business. No, that's
1: part of the analysis. <laughs> right? Okay. That's part of analyzing the situation.
0: So what's next? Nothing. Brainstorming. Oh, brainstorming. Ah, Let's yeah. schedule
1: a meeting at 3.30 on yeah. Wednesday afternoon, and after doing sometimes weeks of analysis, now the most important thing, actually coming up with the idea, you do in an hour and a half with people throwing things off the top of their heads. Right. I mean, it's completely absurd. But that's because the dominant method of strat- teaching strategy is to teaching analysis and is silent on what to do next. And as you say, that's, there's a good reason for that because they think, well, science and data can take us so far and then there's this creative act. And we're, we're silent about that. Well, as it turns out, and this is the starting point of my book, is modern science actually has told us quite a lot about how creativity actually happens and what the mechanism is, and it's not magic. And so you can apply this um, recent understanding to how you actually um, figure out what to do, and it's surprisingly different Working backwards, it tells you different things to do, even in your analysis step.
0: Okay, so what, what do we know about what to do? The creative part, the the actual implementation. I'm, by the way, I'm also skeptical about the, the value of the strategic analysis. I think a lot of the times, for, forget the fact that it doesn't fully tell you what to do. I'm sure a lot of the times it also misses the boat on what the actual state of the actual situation is in the industry, just because it's often so dynamic and fluid. But Uh, Put that to the side. (laughs) Uh,
1: I mean, I'm I'm with you. And the other thing, therefore, (laughs) is that so many companies do that. When they actually come up with their idea, they do something else, be it brainstorming or something else. And sometimes they come up with good ideas, which is great. Certainly, innovators and entrepreneurs typically do nothing remotely resembling that.
0: Right. So what do they do?
1: Or what should they do? What should they do? Well, let me go back now to... Uh, let me start with brain science and take, take us then into military history. <laughs> let me do these two steps. Right. Starting with brain science, uh, the, in 1981, since 1981, there's been a dominant understanding of how the brain works, and this is the two sides of the brain. It's because no one, someone named Roger Sperry won the Nobel Prize for his work on the two sides of the brain, and you've probably heard this. Your listeners have probably heard this.
0: And we talked about it in an earlier podcast with Dan Pink, A uh, Whole New Mind, an interesting book on creativity, actually.
1: And uh, the the typical model is that the left side of the brain is analytical and rational and logical, and the right side of the brain is creative and intuitive and imaginative. And this caught on. Um, people would say, well, I'm a right. And, you have,
0: and you're good at one and not the you're other. You're good at
1: one and not the other. And, you know, more recently people have said, well, you have to be good at both, so you have to turn on both sides of the brain, you know, to do both. Well, all of that in modern science is completely overturned. Uh, one does not, creativity does not reside on one side of the brain, and analysis does not reside on another side of the brain. Uh, the modern science of the brain, analysis and intuition, work in all modes of thought throughout the brain at all times. Uh, And the new model of the brain is something called intelligent memory, where basically what happens is as you go through life, um, from the time you're born, you're essentially putting things on the shelves of your brain. Um, And your brain breaks them down and puts them on the right shelves. And this is literally analysis. Analysis means breakdown. Um, They call it parsing, the neuroscientists. And as new things come in, your brain, uh, when it's working well, searches. It takes each new piece and sees if anything connects to it on the shelves. And when it does, those pieces come together and you have a thought. And if those pieces come from very distant parts, distant shelves, seemingly unrelated shelves, and lots of them come together about something important, you have a very big thought, otherwise known as a flash of insight or a creative idea. Now, what this says is that uh, creativity is actually uh, based on elements that you have to put in your mind and combine. So creativity, and this is true in strategy as well, is a new combination of previous elements.
0: Well, I really like that. I want to stop there for a sec. uh, First, I want to contrast it with the way I think we sometimes think of creativity and the way I think those brainstorming sessions are what they're relying on, which is that if I just think hard enough, if I just work at it enough... It, it, it'll all come together. I'll, I'll have a flat, that flash of insight. What What you're suggesting from neuroscience, which I, uh, both as a occasional thinker and a often a parent, uh, find interesting, is that one, having lots of stuff already in there, is a really important part of it. And two, it's about connections of disparate uh, and it potentially disparate, but right. now it turns out similar items that go together. Right. And
1: and in a sense, sort of the, the ultimate thing, you're absolutely right, that somehow brainstorming says look deeper and deeper in your own mind, whereas the answer comes from outside, <laughs> right? It's pieces that come into your mind that you then combine. Certainly the the combination happens in your mind, but you have to put lots of different things on the shelves of your mind. So look outside, not inside in the first instance.
0: Well, let me defend brainstorming for a second, something which I... I happen to think it's usually an enormous waste of time. Uh, <clears throat> but let, let me defend it briefly. Uh-huh. It's imaginable that you have something on your shelf that's not on mine. And when we're all in the same room, uh, lots of stuff can get thrown together that, that allows me to network essentially across other brains, right? That, that's the, that would be the best-case scenario. It sounds well, good.
1: Well, I mean, okay, but why do you need a meeting at 3.30 on Wednesday afternoon for that? What are, you t- doing, what are you doing the rest of the week?
0: Well, one. I, I need to interact with folks. I need to draw on their knowledge that I don't have.
1: And why do you only do that in a brainstorming meeting?
0: Yeah, no, well, that, I, that I see. No, okay, the idea so that's,
1: the... that's one. Two, you're giving the wrong instructions on brainstorming. The, construct, the correct instructions are brainstorming is, free your mind, come up with something completely new. Think outside the box. Right. Whereas what you're saying is a very different kind of meeting. You're saying, you know, look, here, here's something we're working on. Uh, search in, in everything you've experienced or known or learned and tell me, do you see any connection here that might be helpful? Well, Th- These are two different things. Yeah, also, the other thing is that, that still is not, you still cannot force 3.30 Wednesday afternoon that that particular person, that particular idea is going to create in you any kind of flash of insight. Let me start way at the beginning and say, when do you typically have your best ideas?
0: In the shower. In
1: the shower.
0: <laughs> As you say in the book. I'm, right. Like,
1: there you go. In the shower, in the bar. bar yeah. just, you know. Everybody always answers this.
0: Driving in traffic when right. I'm thinking so, about so, it. Right. Yeah.
1: So just p- practically in everybody's experience, it's quite obvious that ideas come together in your mind when your mind is relaxed, often about a topic that you weren't really thinking about.
0: Well, there's two, so, I- there's two ideas there, and I, wa- I, I want to keep them separate for, sure. for, for the listeners because I, I found this very interesting. One of the insights from neuroscience that you talk about, which is utterly fascinating and I think everybody has some flavor and taste of, is that, to take a trivial example, when I can't think of the name of some actor in a movie, I'm trying to remember, it I'm 53, it's taken me a while to realize that rather than just keeping thinking about it and going through the alphabet and trying to figure out what the name is, if, say I don't have access to Google, uh-huh. uh, the best thing to do is just to stop thinking for about it for a while and right. think about it in 10 minutes right. or half an hour or tomorrow. Right. And talk about what neuroscience has found about what happens when we sleep, which I found extremely interesting. That's one thing, this idea of leaving things alone. And then I want to come back to the interactions. Talk about that first.
1: So the the best way for your mind to make connections is for you to have no preconceptions about what it is. It's looking for where to look for it, which shelves, the name of the shelves. You have to just literally clear your mind. And this is very, very hard to do. Now, there's a discipline of how to do it that comes from Asian martial arts. Um, But the best way to do it is to go to sleep. And this is why people also say that I have my best ideas falling asleep or waking up. Um, Because what happens is that's when your mind is connecting the dots and you can remember (laughs) what it connected. Um, Now, that's just the way it is. And that's, why brainstorming, again, not to beat a dead horse, but that's why saying on 3.30, we're all going to get together and we're all going to have creative ideas about topic X. Well, you know, you're going to have a, a creative idea on topic X some other time, you know, m- most likely when you're falling asleep. And also you may have, the idea may be on topic Y, which is what people really should be working about. on. Right? Very often your, your best ideas are really off-center, they're not about the thing you thought you should be brainstorming about. You realize, oh, you know, the real problem is something else.
0: Well, so one of the lessons here, and I, this is um, uh, slightly dangerous, I think, as, as business advice. One of the lessons is since you can't rely on 330 and you're not quite sure what you are going to be thinking about at, at the particular time that's most productive, what you should do is just hang out with the people in your office. Uh, talk about uh, football, the weather, Uh, the last novel you read, um, recite some poetry, and then maybe there's going to be this flash of insight. Um, Is is this an argument for uh, going on retreats where you really don't try to figure out what the goal of the business is? You just do ropes exercises? I, I, I
1: I think that going on retreats is unrealistic because then basically we'd have to spend all week on a retreat every week. And then you say, well, what do I do back in the office? Right? The answer is, I think that people, I think it's much simpler than this, is that um, there's some. think of something called reverse brainstorming, where you as the boss say to everybody, look, I understand that you're actually going to have your best ideas, not at work. That's perfectly fine. You know, at work, we're going to do the perspiration of making things happen, and frankly, there just isn't lots of time or methods within our four walls to have creative ideas. But you're going to have lots of creative ideas. Brushing your teeth in the morning, you know, stuck in traffic, getting on the train, in the bar, you know. Um, and please remember them. They can be on any subject. Write them down. And once a week on 3:30 on Wednesday, we're going to bring them all. And they don't have to be on any subject that I, as boss, am predetermining. That's the whole point of creative ideas: is they're sometimes off center. And then, but we don't want to lose them. And then let's talk about them there.
0: Well, I used to teach time management to the business school uh, uh-huh. students, to the MBAs. I stopped teaching it when I realized I couldn't follow the incredibly good advice I was giving them. <laughs> um, and that, that's an interesting phenomenon in and of itself, which we'll, uh-huh. we'll leave for another time. But one of the standard uh, teachings of time management, and prioritization, and, and uh, just productivity is that you should start your day, you should clean off your desk or clean your mind off, and... Make sure when you, you should start, it, you should make a to do list for the day and have in mind not just answering the latest email that's the urgent but the important. You should make sure that you keep your big goals in mind, your big projects, etc. And it's probably better to do that than to just answer every phone call and every email that comes through and, and make sure that you're busy all day. But neither of those methods really creates that opportunity for creative thinking. And if you're right, and I think you are, that, that much of this creative thinking takes place at odd times when your brain is in a peculiar place, how might someone who wants to do more of that make that happen other than to you know look around now and then or create those quiet moments? I'm not quite sure what the practical upshot of this is other than don't brainstorm at
1: 3.30. Well, uh, don't brainstorm at 3.30. Do reverse brainstorming. Make sure you keep... Time for people to bring ideas that come out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. You have to do carve that out. So, yep. that, right? Encourage people to drop into each other's. When you have a thought, why wait? The other thing is say, you know, and don't wait till Wednesday. If you think it's like really interesting, go talk to somebody and drop in their office. And say, look, I had a thought. Sometimes people say, oh well, that kind of brainstorming is good, and it is. You know, someone dropping into their office saying, you know, I had this thought, and you sitting there try to find time to say okay, you know, I have two minutes, let's talk. That's very good, right? That's a great kind of brainstorming because it's based on someone bringing an idea that they had, you know, in that quiet moment of their mind. Now, uh, the other thing is, I think the most important thing is to tell people this because people waste an awful lot of time in other methods of trying to come up with the creative ideas. There's the creative stimulation thing where, you know, let's uh, let's play darts let's have beanbag chairs let's throw you know food up on the wall to see what patterns it makes there's a whole, Funny industry.
0: Hats, yeah. there's a whole industry of this. Yeah.
1: and again it's based on the left right brain let's turn off our analytical brain let's turn on our uh, the other thing is that you simply say to people look just what you said about trying to recover that that name just stop especially if you're working on something that has lots of needs lots of creative ideas have the courage to send people home early because the typical thing is to work on into the evening and this the research is very very clear that you know going home at six you do much better the next day than if you go home at midnight and especially for creative ideas the best thing to do is to work really hard put everything on the shelves of your mind on what the problem is what other people say what the data is what this is that and then stop relax go bowling go to sleep and you'll have far better ideas the following morning than if you had worked till
0: midnight. It reminds me of an interesting uh, weird sub-literature that I think is unappreciated in the business world, which is how to write. If you read books on how to write, which I do from time to time, Uh uh, a lot of them have a strange section where the author is usually a successful writer who often has nothing useful to tell you because you're not that person. Uh, you know, Stephen King wrote a really interesting book on writing and there are many useful things in it but there are many things that are only useful to Stephen King you know, right. you know, write 2,500 words a day or 5,000 or 10,000 every number he writes is is nice for Stephen not so useful for most of us right. uh, he says never outline I don't outline Why? well it doesn't work for him but for month, some people need to outline right. um, but one of the things that's in most of these books is how these writers jump start their quote creative juices and what strikes me about that weird sub literature is how disparate those techniques are uh on the surface but how they do have something in common which which you're talking about which is which is to wipe the slate clean uh there's some people who go out and stand on a street corner and watch traffic for 20 or 30 minutes before they write Mm -hmm. and don't do anything they don't think about anything they don't they don't do anything. Other right. people play loud rock music. Other right. people, uh, you know, gaze out a particular window at a particular setting, etc. cetera. Right. And I think that's the same process that's going on.
1: This is the – my own view is this is the hardest step because people are busy. Think of how easy it is to multitask now, which is the worst possible thing you can do to have a creative thought. I mean there are so many ways you can do things to actually free your mind is by far,
0: I think, the hardest step. Well, if you if you multitask enough, it's like doing nothing. It's like standing in a busy traffic corner because it's just all noise. You just you're respond to emails right, now, you're reading right. what you're writing. Yeah, that's true. If you're, if you're really not thinking about any of it, that's the, true. The other thought I had, going back to the reference I made to parenting, is uh, I, I don't let our kids watch much uh, television, uh-huh. and they don't do much work on the computer in, in terms of uh, games or exploration. Right. And I think that's a good – I've always thought it's a good thing. I feel even better about it now because – that stuff that goes on the shelves of the brain is what's important, and you want to vary it. You want to, have expo- you want to expose your kids and yourself, certainly as a thinking adult, to as wide a variety of stuff that you can then link together to create creative stuff.
1: Uh, and I, my own view would be uh, – my understanding is through serial immersion, meaning you really immerse yourself into it. Right. Whereas very often, you know, the video and all this other stuff is very superficial.
0: Yeah, you're not paying attention to anything. You're really not,
1: really, not paying yeah. attention to anything. Uh, so, I mean, I'm I'm the same way uh, with my daughter.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see how they very turn. Very little TV. Very little. Yeah, we'll see how these kids turn out. I think phenomenally, uh, don't you? Um, Let's move on to military issues.
1: Oh, okay. So, in which so uh, part of the beauty of this? Is of that first
0: segue? Yeah. <laughs>
1: part, well, part of the beauty of this is that really the whole idea here is that creativity is a combination. Uh, a new uh, the combination is new, but the elements came before.
0: Yeah, I like that. You you know, talk know, it's about the only that. way it can happen. Yeah, I like that. A
1: lot. Uh, so it turns out there's nothing. So wonderfully, this confirms something that somebody wrote about in early military strategy, right? So, once again, there's nothing new under the sun, but now we're able to appreciate it in modern terms. And it turns out the word strategy entered the English language in 1810. This is very late for an ordinary English word. Um, Most ordinary English words are 13th century, 14th century, 15th century. And it's also very specific. It's not, you know, early 19th century. It's 1810. And... Uh, I, when I discovered this, I found it interesting, I had no idea why, and I looked it up and discovered that it was the height of success of Napoleon Bonaparte as a general. As an American, you know, I didn't know that Napoleon was Napoleon because he won battle after battle across Europe, personally, and that's how he became Napoleon, the emperor of Europe. Um, Europeans tend to know this very well because he conquered their country. So it turns out his enemies started studying how he did it, especially the Germans and the the English, and so started the formal scholarship of strategy as an academic discipline in order to figure out how to defeat Napoleon. Um, Certainly, strategy existed previously, uh, if not in English, in other uh, parts of the world, especially China, of course. Um, where you get Sun Tzu, The Art of War. So strategy as a philosophy is ancient, but as a formal academic subject that we would recognize today as true scholarship, it dates from that period. And indeed, it's from this period, that period that I'm describing that we in business inherited formal strategy. Well, as it turns out, a, um, a Prussian named Karl von Clausewitz in 1832 published his answer to how Napoleon succeeded and it, the book is called On War. It's still in print, a great classic, taught in military academies around the world to this day. And right there, his most important idea is something he, go, he calls coup de, um, which is strike of the eye or a glance. And his description of it is amazingly similar to modern neuroscience of intelligent memory applied to new situations, that it's a new combination of previous elements that Napoleon was a though he was very young and had never fought battles before when he started out he had mastered all the previous military moves and battles that came before him and was able to draw upon them in new combinations to win um and So had, he didn't
0: the, the the point here is that he didn't uh you know invent the uh the V2 rocket or a nuclear nothing. bomb. He, he, he combined insights from previous campaigns right. and he would in li- novel he ways. He would literally
1: say so, his first Italian campaign, he'd say, Well, you know, this sort of looks like what Frederick the Great faced in his Silesian campaign of 1852. And indeed, you know, you would, if you looked at Frederick's campaign if you looked at this, you'd say, Yes, I see why he says that. You know, the Prussians are here, the, the Austrians are there, and he has the similar size forces, and so he's going to do the same thing. To a degree, right? And then he combined something that Caesar did in a particular situation.
0: So your claim is that his uh, creativity on the battlefield was partly a result of the stuff he had on the shelves, the fact that he had so many strategic uh, campaigns from the past uh, in his hard drive, and then also presumably in his ability to see connections between them.
1: Yes, to to literally keep his mind open.
0: Now... It sounds nice. It's hard to know if that's true. Let me give you a a different example and get your reaction to it. When I read about the campaigns of the Confederate Army, another tactical genius, strategic genius, uh, Robert E. Lee, what I notice is a different skill of leadership, which is not unrelated to what we're talking about, but it's slightly different, which is that he delegated a lot of authority to his underlings, Because he realized, I think, that they had information he could not pull into one place. And this is an idea of Friedrich Hayek we've talked about a number of times in past podcasts. This decision maker, the leader, whatever you want to call the CEO, can't have all the information that's available in the organization. And a huge part of leadership is finding ways to liberate that information to serve its best purpose, the price system does that in a modern economy. In an organization, you don't have prices, so you have to find some other way to liberate that. And in the case of Lee, he delegated a lot of authority to his generals and gave them lots of freedom to innovate on their in their corner of the battlefield, rather than getting a you know a full report, figuring out this master plan, sending the information back down. So, how does that relate to, to your understanding of what Napoleon was successful at?
1: Well, um, first of all, Lee, him, Lee himself was not a great battlefield general. So he wisely had other battlefield generals lead the battlefield strategy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a very good idea. It was the same thing with um, Eisenhower and Patton. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower was not a great battlefield general, but he did his best to give Patton, who would often act like a crazy man, but was a spectacular battlefield general, he did his best to give Patton, you know, his, the, the uh, to delegate to Patton. Mm-hmm. Now, when he delegated to the other ten generals of the Western Front of World War so, II, the results were not very good because they weren't, they didn't do it did. But to get back to the Confederate situation, um In general, certainly delegation is good because then that person within their purview has the maximum flexibility and unity of command to do what they need to do. So that's really wonderful, and that's very important in a particular battle to do that. But still, Lee did not delegate overall strategy. So, for example, the invasion of the North, which was really his biggest strategic move. I mean, basically, here's what happened. To start the war, the, the, um, the North invaded the South, and the South in a series of defensive battles, won, right? Now, certainly in those series of defensive battles, the general in charge had full capacity of where and when to fight, and that's great. But when it came time to invade them, but then Lee said, look, we're going to lose eventually because the North is gearing up, you know, with more... Too much
0: industrial capacity.
1: Industrial, right. So we said, let's invade. Now, he certainly did not delegate that.
0: Correct. The right. right and and that's you're, you're really making a distinction here between tactics and strategy
1: well or or levels of strategy, in other words, like you know if if it's clear that you know we're going to fight seven battles in seven different places, those seven generals should be in charge, but if we're all together going to do something, I think it's really. It's, I mean, I hope CEOs know that they have to decide.
0: Right. No, they don't understand. You don't send your seven different pieces of your army off in different places. There has to be yeah. some unit.
1: Now, of care. course, that, you know, that person, you know, you should always keep an open mind. You should talk to as many people as possible. You shouldn't sit in your office and decide by yourself, absolutely. But I think, you know, the one of the keys of strategy is that at some point, somebody has to have a strategic idea on what to do. And all I'm doing is explaining where those good strategic ideas come from.
0: But the part about Napoleon that I found interesting, which reminded me of Lee, was the understanding that you didn't have to fight at this particular place, that where you fought yes. uh, w- was, a, was a valuable you – know, it wasn't like checkers or chess where you, 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 you raid move, yourself right. in, in battle against the other yeah. side. They understood yeah. that there were enormous advantages to just moving.
1: Yeah, and this, the civil war is actually very interesting because it was only it was only Grant Lin- Lincoln was correct to keep firing his generals, and it, eventually it was Grant who figured this out. And really, the the final success was Grant and Sherman. He, you know, they both understood this, understanding the the, the how mobile war works, so, and uh, so that's why the North won. So, what
0: does that have to do with with us today? The, this an understanding of Clausewitz. What do we learn? from Clausewitz and and the lessons of of military genius such as Napoleon.
1: Well, well, one thing that I found very, very interesting is because here we have this strategic, in a sense, sort of the the classic of military strategy is this um, uh, very, as you say, sometimes you don't fight (laughs) uh, and you conform your your actions to the force of circumstance as you find it. And I think this is the opposite of, I think, what lots of people, including myself, had have, and what I used to have, of the idea of how military strategy works, which is you set an ambitious goal and, you know, an objective that you want to take, and then you mobilize all your troops and march them there to Fight your way to that goal.
0: You have a plan for how it's going plan. to unfold, right. and so
1: so, and that your goal simply comes out from you know you study the map and what's the objective you need to achieve. Versus you know part of mobile war, which Lee you know Lee came very close to winning actually, uh, and Grant eventually um, learned is that your your goal evolves. You only set your goal when you see a way to achieve it in some way, and this is seems the opposite of. You know, hard-nosed military strategy, but it's actually military success.
0: And the same for business. I, I really like that. the insight that, you know, you don't plan that you're going to take over this industry and get there via this set of actions. You're looking for opportunity to exploit right. rather than... Um, right. Than so, I mean, if you see
1: a way to do that, that's great. Right, now yeah. you know where to go, but you don't set that goal beforehand. That's madness.
0: Now, the question is this. How is there a way to do this... With any degree of systematic attack, and let, me, let me say it a different way, a little more skeptical way. Uh, is there anything that great innovators do that those of us who are not great innovators can get close to? Or is it merely the fact that they, their flashes of insight, while well, they're brushing their teeth, they're always going to be better than mine, and so there's just nothing to be done about it?
1: Well, I think they learned it. They certainly weren't born with it. Uh, I think over time they learned that that's how you do it. Now they may not have learned it consciously. um, But, you know, we can all learn it. Now, uh, I just read a wonderful article about dyslexia, that one-third of successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic. So um, that's quite nice in that, you know, it's some other way of thinking. In other words, don't just stick to the straight line that's not what's going to get you there. You know, dyslexics are famous for seeing the the whole, not just the sum of the parts. Um, So I, though I, though in big companies... That's
0: not very very helpful for those of us who are dyslexic.
1: Well, wait a second. (laughs) I mean, in smaller companies, well, I I mean, in a longer conversation, I'll explain to you how it is helpful, but it would take too long to explain right now. All right. But uh, um, in smaller companies, you know, you can see right away it's easier. You have more control over how people spend their time. In big companies with these huge processes already in place, there's something I discovered at General Electric, which is a wonderful team exercise that basically can and should replace formal strategic planning for how to do this, for how a team can basically set a general idea of what the situation is and then lay out where they're going to steal from on what topics to see if they can put together a puzzle of a good idea. Mm-hmm. And this is just a wonderful technique that mimics amazingly well intelligent memory applied to a team situation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's, you know, that's in the book, um, but I well, got it from General Electric.
0: Well, what I like that's, that's really interesting about this, um, this idea is that I think there's an enormous amount of imitation, which is a form of stealing, uh, in business and in entrepreneurship, where people look at what works and they figure, I'll do that, that works. And one of the lessons of your book, I think, is that uh, doing more of what works often isn't what gets you to the top. It's doing something different. And to think about ways of doing something that haven't been done before is much more productive than simply figuring out who's doing it well and we'll just do it better. Which is always the safe approach. It's well, um, the... there's, a,
1: there's a wonderful quote by uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1948, American-British poet. And um, he said, uh, it's a great quote, and he chose his words very carefully, of course, because he's a poet. Yeah. He said, immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. <laughs> so this is That's really funny. quite... I like that. Quite great because it's you know if you're going to imitate somebody you're you're going to do what they do and you're probably going to be two steps behind them because they're ahead of you in doing it. Stealing means you're not going to be like them. You're going to take certain pieces of what they're doing and certain pieces of what somebody else is doing legally. I mean legal stealing. Um, you take that and that and that and you make a new combination versus I'm going to imitate what someone else is doing. This is an enormous... This, these are two very, <laughs> very different things, and the difference is huge. So, you know, Steve Jobs, the famous uh, uh, example is where he had made, he and Wozniak had made a sm- nice small machine, the Apple II, but it had a green screen. He got a chance to go to Xerox Park and see what they had, and that's where he discovered the graphical user interface, and he had a very famous flash of insight where... Wozniak's machine came into his mind combined with the graphical user interface that Xerox had showed him. Um, and uh, he didn't want to imitate Xerox because the machine that the GUI, the graphical user interface was on that Xerox showed him was $16,000 and as big as a refrigerator. So if Jobs was going to imitate Xerox, he would make a machine as big as a refrigerator for $16,000.
0: With a prettier screen, maybe. With a prettier <laughs> screen,
1: but, but no. He said, oh, I just want that one thing. I want that graphical user interface. And it's wonderful. The interview uh, that he, he describes this in, he says, and they showed me these two other things. I didn't even see those two other things. So he was very clear about he was selectively taking, right? And this is the key. You have to selectively take and that's uh, why it's a new combination, always:
0: yeah, that particular insight, I think uh, of, of jobs is is underappreciated because so much of the wealth created that's measurable from that insight got captured by Bill Gates, uh, but, right. but it was Jobs' insight and, and the beginning insights of the people at Xerox Park that created the computer uh, revolution and the Internet was the step that we needed before we could get all the rest of it. Without it, it would just be a a hobby for a small group of people. Right, and
1: Jobs has continued to do this. You know, the MP3 player was invented by Creative Technologies of Singapore. You
0: know, on and on and
1: on. He's a master at seeing new combinations from what other people have already done.
0: Well, I want to talk about Schumpeter um, and that maybe is a nice transition. Uh, Schumpeter and others talk about the difference between invention and innovation. The person who invented the GUI, the graphical user interface, or the MP3 player. That was an important step, but it wasn't the innovation. The innovation was Jobs bringing it into our houses in in a way that couldn't have been done by the inventor.
1: Well, I mean, he's absolutely right. What's very interesting, though, of course, is that if you roll it backwards to the person who invented the GUI, you will indeed find that that person, it's a new combination from previous elements.
0: Yeah, that's true. So so in a
1: sense, even invention is amazingly more uh, – has more stealing than most people think. But um, certainly uh, Schumpeter is right, is that for the entrepreneur, that's not your you – you, what do you care? I mean, all you care is how to uh, make something happen. But typically entrepreneurs, and Schumpeter does say this, is that even the entrepreneur has to make a new combination. You know, so the, the entrepreneur doesn't invent even business models or at least not wholly. So, for example, you get this, another famous example where Ray Kroc, um, was 52 years old, had invested his life savings in a machine that made milkshakes, eight milkshakes at once. Wow. You know, if, <laughs> So you would probably say, he's driving around the country trying to sell these things, and you would probably say, here's a guy with zero strategic intuition, zero business acumen, the poor guy, would somebody just give him a job? and the misery of him trying to sell this stupid machine. Well, he finds out that one of his customers in San Bernardino, California, is using eight of them at once. So he says, fabulous, let me go see what they're doing, and I'll tell all my customers how to use eight at once. Well, lo and behold, he arrives, and it's a roadside restaurant called McDonald's, run by Mac and Dick McDonald's. And in Ray Kroc's book, uh, his memoirs, he, he describes a classic flash of insight. You know, he described it as an Idaho potato hitting him on the head, the way Newton's apple fell on his head. And he said, this is it. You know, and it was an assembly line. He describes it it as an assembly line of really the first fast food machine. And he said, I'm going to combine that with the franchise system of um, uh, Howard Johnson's, which already had roadside franchises, 400 of them, but were sit-down restaurants. So he said, this is it. So these two things came together in his mind. So Ray Kroc invented the fast food franchise. But from two previous elements, the sit-down roadside franchise of Howard Johnson's and the exact fast-food machine of the McDonald's brothers in San Bernardino, California.
0: The rest is history. The
1: rest is history. And, you know, there's a colleague here, he's actually two offices down from me, named Amar Bide. uh, The best book for entrepreneurs to read is The Origin and Evolution of New Businesses. And he just documents how successful entrepreneurs actually succeeded. And certainly where they get their ideas is very much this kind of creative combination.
0: Now, of course, there's a selectivity bias here in that we know the ones that were great and that made it, became McDonald's, became the iPhone, et cetera. There must be thousands of, of combinatorial ideas that they're in they're, the people who thought of them thought were the greatest things since sliced bread, and they just turned out to be wrong. right.
1: Absolutely. No question about it.
0: So, so I guess the lesson is, though, is that more ideas are better than fewer. And
1: uh... Well, also, I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's the no guarantee of success. That's for sure. There's no question about that. But it, I think it increases your chances of success.
0: Give us another example of a, a great innovator of our time who combined disparate elements, because I, I think those are very illuminating.
1: Well, I think I, I, there's... I mean, I could tell you the Google story, but that actually would take quite a long time because it's a bit technical, but there's no question that they combined existing elements to make Google. Um, one, of the, um, one of the cases I like for a very important reason, is I'll tell you the reason uh, after I tell you the case, is how Henry Ford came up with the moving assembly line. So it turns out the first stationary assembly line, meaning the chassis are lined up and the teams move along the chassis, was Oldsmobile 1901, Um, and Oldsmobile had the first successful mass-produced car in the world, the Oldsmobile Runabout, very cheap, very, very uh, uh, profitable. Oldsmobile's investors hated these cheap cars. They liked the really fancy handmade ones, you know, artisan-made ones, and They stopped funding him. Olds left the business. Henry Ford imitated Olds exactly in stationary assembly line for Henry Ford's first cheap cars. Hmm. But other car makers started coming in, and we asked the question, okay, Henry, how did you get the idea not to have the chassis stationary, but the chassis to move along a moving line? And this is in his memoirs. He got it from the Chicago stockyards.
0: Hmm.
1: The moving overhead rail of the carcasses. Yeah. Um, and this is really a wonderful example because it shows you how widely you have to open your mind to for for elements to combine.
0: Right, cuz what right? the two have nothing to do with each other. Nothing on, to do, right. Or, it has nothing to do with,
1: you know, he certainly needs to know manufacture car manufacturing pretty well to even, you know, understand what his problems are. But then he has to open his mind as widely as possible. Uh, And this is a mistake lots of people make in so-called best practice. They say, well, you know, let's benchmark the best practice of our industry. Well, the answer is probably in some other industry.
0: So why do you like that example?
1: Uh, Exactly, because you have to look for creative ideas far outside your own industry. How far away it is, yeah. As far, you know, you have no idea where they're going to come from.
0: Any lessons from these insights for personal life? I think a lot of uh, people are always looking for a magic solution to their either their future. Uh, I have a lot of listeners who tell me that they're looking for something new to do. Uh, They didn't get any formal education. Now they've suddenly gotten interested in ideas and they want to change careers. They don't know where to start. Um, Other problems we might have would be, again, how to parent or simply how to move up the ladder of a particular career we have chosen. Any thoughts on what what we? <laughs> well, those, those are those are not big enough for you. Okay. Well, about, what it is is let's cure no, they're, they're they're different. <laughs> yeah. they're simply different. That's all right. Go ahead.
1: Um, but uh, I guess the the I mean I've thought a lot about this and encountered this a lot. Um, the 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 problem is that very often when people then go consult books that try to tell them what to do, it's all a version of personal strategic planning. It's all you know set. You know, set what's your goal. desire? What do you most want to do? And now set a plan to reach it.
0: And all you have to do is believe in it strongly believe enough. Believe in yourself. You just work hard enough. It'll you, Anything, you can make anything happen. You can make anything yeah. happen,
1: right. I mean, it's this just is, silly. This but... is complete <laughs> madness, of course. But, uh, uh, the... So, you know, the lessons are all the same, really. So, uh, what would I say? Where would I start? I would start saying that, uh, it's not true that you can achieve anything you want to if you believe in yourself, set clear goals, and work hard. You should rather prepare for opportunity and try to stay open to it. Now, I have, a ver- I have some very specific techniques for how people, I mean, let, let me just start with where how people change careers or they want to do something different. They need an idea right? You can't just say, well, you know, I'd like to do something else. You need an idea for what you want to do. And even if you say, well, you know, I would really like to be a, um, you know, a concert pianist, you have to say, okay, well, what does it take to be a concert pianist? Um, how many years are you going to work at it? Uh, and, you know, if you're not going to put in that amount of time, you're probably not going to be a concert pianist. So that's fine. Don't worry about it. What else might you like to do? So it's okay to start with what you might like to do because there's really no other place to start. But what it is is there's many things that probably could satisfy you, could make you happy. Many, many. You just have to discover them. And the discovery, there's a a technique for how to discover that I call pure networking where basically you just start with a puzzle or a question that interests you. And you can do this from your existing job very easily. So what you say is, well, you know, I mean, what's an example? Uh, I would be interested in the XYZ business, Um, maybe. So you say, okay, all you need is you need one person to find one person who knows something about that business. And then you just have to ask an interesting question, an interesting puzzle about that business. So, for example, I mean, I'm terrible at coming up with these examples off the top of my head, but it could be, you know, I'm interested in some kind of nutrition business, and I'm wondering if, uh, you know, it exists in Mexico, Mm -hmm. because I love Mexico. So you say, okay, find somebody who knows anything about the nutrition business in Mexico and ask them how the nutrition business in Mexico works. And then after you finish talking to that person, you say, that was really great, I learned a lot. Is there anybody else you think I could talk to?
0: Yeah, who else knows about this? Who else?
1: Say, what can they I give, read? That, that... They give you, well, the reading is less important than give me three more names.
0: Yeah, well, that's true. Right, <laughs>
1: And those three, you do exactly the same thing. Three becomes nine, becomes 27. Eventually, or very quickly, you know more about the nutrition business in Mexico than some of the people you're talking to. And yes, you also read, you know, to because you do get interested, or you discover that you're actually not interested in, the, <laughs> in right. the in the nutrition business in Mexico. But eventually, someone will say to you, "You seem to know quite a lot about this." You know, like, "What are you doing? What do you, are you interested in working in this?" And then you say, "Well, you know, I might be." <laughs> in other words, you you achieve your goal by giving up your goal. You're not looking for a job. If you said to somebody, the first person you said, "Hi, do you know if there's a business in the if, a job in the nutrition business in?" In, uh, uh, in Mexico, what would their answer be? Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. End of conversation. Now, this for me is one of, is the biggest thing because the leading bestseller for years in career switching. What would you say it is? Do you know which one it
0: is? I think it's Who Moved My Cheese, but I've never is it. But I've never read oh, it. Oh, so.
1: actually, that's that's true. Right. That's but that's short. That just tells you. You should change careers. <laughs> the, the guide for how to change
0: careers yeah. is what
1: color is my okay. parish? What color? Is we, yeah, yeah. And the, when you boil it down, you, I, you know, I looked. I said, "So, how does this person tell you exactly to get a new job?" And I, I looked, and here's what the person said. I don't even know the author's name, but they said, "Find the one company in the world you'd most like to work for. Find the one division in that company you'd most like to work for. Find the one person who hires in that division." Go to that person and ask them for a job.
0: Kind of a long shot. This
1: is the worst possible yeah. advice I can possibly <laughs> think of. Yeah. To think that the whole world is set up so that at the moment that you most want something, that thing you most want is there for you. I don't know where this idea came from.
0: Well, I, I see that in my students sometimes when they, they have a dream of going to law school or particular going to a particular school uh, for graduate school or high school students I talk to, uh, Talk to from time to time, and you know th- their dream is to go to a particular university. And if they don't get into that university, they're they're devastated and they're crushed. And they failed. They as failed. If, they failed. As, and there are millions of people walking around the earth today, totally sat, leading totally satisfied lives, <laughs> who've never graduated from that school. It yeah. turns out, uh, or who didn't end up majoring successfully in economics or whatever is yeah. their partic- your particular dream. And that is the risk of the. Um, you know, craft your dream, take find the steps you need to get from A to Z, and then just execute. Right. Because sometimes it doesn't work out. It's, and why?
1: Yeah. And when you look at great achievements, you find out that isn't how people did it. Um, yeah, it's, it's... Actually, I do know the source of it. There was a competitor to von Clausewitz in the military tradition at the same time, someone named Jomini, who actually laid out this set your goal and march your troops to achieve the goal. And he was very popular, but... I think very wrong. Um so so that's why I contrast the what colors my parachute, you know, choose the company you want, choose the job you want and go for it versus this pure networking discovery of find, you know, work your way through the 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 field person to person discovering opportunity.
0: Well, we're almost out of time. I, I I want to ask you about again I think what would be a parody of what you're saying and make sure that 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 this isn't what you're saying. I think a lot of people go through life, um, I forget where I first heard this imagery, but it's to me it's very powerful, uh, as a cork. Uh, you know, they bob on the ocean, uh, the current takes them here, it takes them there, they're purposeless, um, and they just kind of end up doing something that they just, they didn't plan on it, and they just find themselves spending, having spent their life doing this particular thing that they didn't love, and they have a lot of regret. And I think... The counterpoint to the cork is this Germany strategic vision, which we're, we're which we're both critiquing. Which is, don't be a cork. Don't just be swept along by ocean tides. Take charge of your life. Have a goal and go for it. Right. And you're really talking about something much subtler. That's, I think, something in between. How about and, a canoe? A canoe. Go ahead. We'll we'll try to put into words uh, summarize what we've been talking about for how to. Um, Get to where you where you yeah, might I want mean, to end I, up. I, going. I, I
1: like the cork because you know because because if the alternative is no, you know, decide you want to g- cross the ocean and just go across it. Well, you know how? Um, whereas a canoe is sub- subject to the the ebb and tide of the currents and the uh, elements, but you know you have a paddle, and if you figure out how to do it, you can go lots of places, <laughs> starting from where you are.
0: That sounds good to me. Uh, my guest today has been William Duggan. Of Columbia University is the author of Strategic Intuition, The Creative Spark in Human Achievement. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Russell. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to EconTalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.